Identity Talk. I'm your host, Jana Lopez. Thank you for sharing your time with me. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about uncovering meaning about who we are and how we come to see ourselves. Words and identity are my life. I'm the author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. I teach online writing workshops called Write About Now and offer one-on-one transformative coaching sessions that break you through to deeper clarity and connection with yourself through a guided process I call See-Through Words. When it comes to navigating identity funky junk, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope mixed with humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Welcome to Identity Talk. So glad you're here. My guest today is somebody I find fascinating for a number of reasons, but also I thought I could sneak in a little bit of education about one of my favorite passions in life, and that is tequila. So with me today, I have Dr. Adolfo Murillo, who is an optometrist, and I thought how fitting for identity talk. (laughs) (laughs) An optometrist, but also he is president and CEO of Alchemia Tequila, which is delicious and one of the most notable for organic and sustainable farming practices, and there's a whole story around that. So I thought we would begin maybe talking a little bit about your life growing up on a farm and how that shaped who you are and what that experience was about. And then we'll work our way into some of the other interesting topics that I have. Absolutely. And uh, uh, Ms. Jenna, thank you so much for uh, having me on your show. I'm very excited to be here and I appreciate it very much and appreciate your interest in uh, well, some of the things that we're doing and, and especially in our, uh, in our line of tequilas as well. Uh, but I think there's a lot around that that, that uh, we can talk about besides just the, uh, just the product. Definitely. To begin, you asked me about what it was like for me to grow up on a farm. I actually only spent the first four years of my life uh, growing up on the farm, which is uh, uh, the farm back in Jalisco, Mexico, which was first farmed by my grandfather in 1941. Fortunately, we had the, the, uh, the um, opportunity to keep this property in the family. And this was very important to us because it's, our, it's actually our, uh, our place of origin. It's, it's our ties to uh, where we came from. And uh, to have let it go because it was going to be sold when my grandparents passed away. And it was about to be sold. And uh, I talked my dad into not selling it and, uh, and keeping it in the family. And he agreed on the condition that we would then take it over uh, or take over running the ranch and make it productive and, and do some of the things that my grandfather had done on this ranch. And then, then of course, the other reason why it was so important for me uh, to keep it in the family was because I was born on this ranch, uh, which many years later, I had the great opportunity to be able to return and, and use the knowledge that I had gained here in the U.S. through my education and do just what we wanted to do was to, was to make it productive. And uh, I consider myself very, very fortunate to have been able to do that. How many acres is the property? So we farm 125 acres of agave. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when we first uh, took charge of the ranch itself, kind of research what exactly we wanted to do with the ranch. And my grandfather used to grow corn and raise cattle. And I wasn't too excited about uh, about growing corn. And so I, I flew down there several times, fr- very frequently, in uh, researching some of the same things that we could do. Always, uh, I would land in the airport in Guadalajara, the, the capital of the state of Jalisco, and driving the two hours east towards where our ranch is outside of Arandas, Jalisco, in, in the highlands, I came to fall in love with the beautiful rolling hills of blue-green agave that you can see on either side of the road. And I said, that's what I want to do in the ranch. 
And uh, so then when I would get to the ranch, I started talking about wanting to, to grow agave. But even though our ranch is within the state of Jalisco, which is part of the denomination of origin of uh, uh, tequila production, uh, we're kind of on the fringes of the state. And we actually have our own very specific set of, of uh, microclimate conditions. Uh, for example, we have very, very little rainfall compared to the rest of the state of Jalisco. We have very little topsoil. Uh, which is not conducive to growing agave. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, extremes in temperatures uh, from day to day and, and season to season and throughout the year. So everybody that I talked to about it told me that it, agave was just not going to grow there. And I didn't want to take that for an answer. So I used my science background to figure out what, how we could go about it. So I took a chemistry set down with me and I analyzed our soil and I analyzed soil samples from uh, the the main agave growing region in Jalisco. And I compared the nutrient levels and, and uh, the things that we would need to do to uh, augment and, and, uh, and improve our soil to the point where we could actually grow agave. But from the get-go, we decided we wanted to do it all organically uh, because we wanted to take as good care of the soil and the ranch as my grandfather had. And he was probably the first organic farmer uh, before that became a, a fad or a thing, uh, he, he, his philosophy was, if you take care of the soil, it'll produce for you. Right. And, uh, and we wanted to continue along with that, but using his old world uh, natural farming methods in combination with the most uh, modern in organic science from the U.S. and, and from Europe and, and around the world. And so we developed what we call our organic agave protocol. And not only were we able to grow agave on our ranch uh, because of our organics, but by the time our first harvest came around, which was about seven years later. This was early 90s, right, when you started? This was the early 90s, exactly, when we started. Right. Uh, I think about 27, 28 years ago. So when our first harvest came around, we were able to not only grow agave and show that we could grow agave, but we actually equaled the yields of a really good harvest in the rest of Jalisco. But that was just the beginning. Every subsequent uh, harvest after that, we were actually improving in terms of size and weight and sugar content of the agave itself, which uh, uh, was a direct indicator that our organic program was working. And the more that we improved our soil, the more that we uh, increased the microbiological activity in the soil, the better it was going to be able to sustain our agave and grow it very, very healthy. And uh, we've actually set records in terms of size and weight and sugar content. Uh, so when our third, har our fourth harvest was coming around, we decided, and this was in 2004, we decided to create our own brand of tequila to, to uh, actually produce our own tequila from our own agave and use that as a vehicle to draw more attention to the need to return to natural farming methods. And uh, that was when Tequila Alquimia was born. <laughs> so tell me about the name. So the name Alquimia means alchemy, which means, uh, which is the ancient art of creating gold from common elements. And uh, the ancient alchemists, most of them in the, in the, in the Arabic uh, peninsula, tried and worked entire lifetimes uh, working to try to create gold, and they were never able to. And we like to say that uh, we created liquid gold, which is alchemy. Yes, yes. Not to be confused with the Jose Cuervo kind. <laughs> <laughs> For everybody out there who does not know tequila, that, you know, this is real gold. This yeah. is the real so, deal. It is, absolutely. And the other reason why we chose the name, or actually there's two more reasons. One is my, my background is science. And as a scientist, I appreciated everything that the ancient alchemists did to develop what we call now our modern laboratory science methods. And, and they did this because uh, in their belief that they could create gold, they wanted to, they developed very, very exact methods of measurement, for example, of, of volumes, of weights, of temperatures, and, uh, uh, and, and procedures. Because if they were able, if they were ever able to actually create gold, they wanted to be able to go back and follow the exact same uh, procedure and make make more gold and, and continue to make it. Again, they never were able to, 
but the modern laboratory or the laboratory methods that they developed back then are still with us today. We follow uh, those, those laboratory procedures very, very closely and very, very similarly to what they developed way back then. And then the third reason why we chose the name Alquimia is that my favorite book, and I know you're an author, you appreciate literature, you appreciate good literature. My favorite book is by a Brazilian writer named Paulo Coelho called The Alchemist. And, uh, and uh, there is an alchemist in the book and he, he actually is able to make gold in, within the book. But to me, the underlying theme of the book, The Alchemist is follow your dreams. And this has been our dream. For a lot of people that don't know about tequila, it's one of those misunderstood, misrepresented spirits that I have spent over a decade learning and researching and coming to appreciate. And I know more than some, and I know not nearly as much as many that I know, but it's an endless, fascinating education. And the spirit itself is seeped in culture and tradition and family and there is so much science involved in how what you're tasting in a bottle similar to wine for people who appreciate wine uh, it all depends on where in the land it's grown how much rainfall there was if it's a high location or a low location the soil content the methodologies that a producer will go through in terms of its production where they cut corners where they don't and I have been to many of these distilleries and I have seen the alchemy and the science coming into fruition because there's fermentation, there's proprietary yeast. There are so many pieces to the alchemy puzzle to where nature and science and man's creation and art form and preference come into it. It's highly fascinating because the matrix of what can result is unlimited in so many ways. It's a really interesting blend of nature and science and art and culture. And it's one of the spirits where I can feel it and taste it and understand it when it's happening in that moment. So I can appreciate that you came at it with this idea of how to make it come together through this very intricate process. It takes a lot of patience. <laughs> it, it absolutely does, especially those first seven years waiting for your first harvest. <laughs> that, uh, that took a, that you're like no, 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 biting your nails. <laughs> that took a great amount of patience, but you're uh, you're absolutely right. I agree with you 100. Uh, percent This is a product that is uh, so very, very steeped in tradition and in culture. Uh, and as you know, agave. Uh, which is the plant from which we make the tequila. Uh, that has been around for thousands of years in, in, in Mexico. And, and uh, the uh, indigenous uh, peoples of, of ancient Mexico uh, used it, especially in the high central uh, areas of, of Mexico, uh, the arid, very arid regions where agave uh, proliferated. And my belief is this, uh, I'll share this with you. In any part of the world that you, that you might uh, uh, travel to, you'll find that there's always a certain crop, a certain plant, a certain something that, that grows there just naturally. And, uh, and that is there in order to help to sustain the, the people that live around that, that area. And to me, agave was that plant uh, that, that was placed there in the central uh, Mesoamerican plains uh, to help sustain the indigenous peoples back then because agave gave gave the people uh, sustenance. They, they used it as a food source. It gave them shelter because they used uh, the leaves uh, for shelter, for, for uh, providing uh, uh, roof materials. Uh, the quiote, the central flowering stock, was used as a, uh, uh, sometimes as beams for, to build up those roofs. Uh, the, the, uh, the sharp spikes at the end of the leaves were used as needles. And, uh, and the fiber within the uh, leaves themselves was, could be used as a thread. So many different uses that it had. And then this is where uh, what I like to call a confluence of cultures came in. When the, uh, uh, the European Spanish conquistadors came to Mexico, uh, they very soon ran out of the King's Brandy and they began to look around to see what there was uh, available that they could maybe distill. 
and make something that they could drink. And uh, they noticed that a lot of the folks uh, in Central Mexico were drinking uh, what we know today as pulque, uh, back then they called it oatly, which is a fermented sap of the uh, juice of the agave plant. Um, very low alcohol content, something like maybe a, a beer. Uh, and the Spaniards thought, well, maybe we can distill this and, uh, and create something stronger. Uh, much more. That's the 1500s, 1600s? Or? In uh, 15, I believe they arrived in 1520, so sometime yeah, after that's that, what they, I remember. they began to, to develop this. Mm -hmm. So, what they did is they brought over the alambiques from Spain, and alambiques are the uh, stills, the distillation equipment, uh, which were actually developed by the alchemists in uh, <laughs> wanting to purify, and that's very true. And a lot of these words, especially from Spain that begin with A-L are actually of Arabic origin. So the alchemists actually developed the distillation equipment. Uh, they, not so much to make alcohol, they, they did it to, uh, uh, to purify and concentrate essential oils from different plants uh, in order to create medicinal substances. And so eventually this was, they actually made alcohol, uh, again, for medicinal purposes. But then when the Spaniards and the Europeans found out about this, they brought it over to uh, Europe and began to uh, distill uh, their wines and, and created brandy. So uh, you see how cultures, different cultures are, are very intertwined here in this final product. So they brought the alambiques or the distillation equipment to Mexico and started uh, distilling uh, this fermented agave sap and created what they called then, it was all under the, the, uh, the umbrella name of mezcal. And, uh, and that just uh, really became a huge industry. From what I understand, I mean, it started, it had humble beginnings, but, but grew over time. And then in the 1800s, I think is when they started exporting it or making it more commoditized. Is that true? It, it is, uh, yeah, it became more commercialized and uh, there were huge land grants uh, that were deeded to uh, some of these, uh, uh, these folks that came over from Spain, uh, one of them being Jose Cuervo, uh, yeah. uh, was uh, given a, a huge uh, land grant uh, actually around the town of what is the town of Jalisco today. In, in, uh, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the town of uh, Tequila, the town of Tequila mm -hmm. in Jalisco and, uh, and others along, uh, along with him. And uh, so they, they had these huge expanses of land on which they could grow the agave and they began to produce, uh, to produce the, uh, what we now know today as they call it then mezcal and then it became known as mezcal de tequila because it was produced in that region and right. eventually it was shortened to just tequila. So let's talk about the cultural aspect for you because you live in two cultures as somebody who's here who works and lives and went to school and sort of did this American path of being here and forging this life and then you go to Mexico where the farming and the family life and the structure of how things get done because I've been to those parts of Mexico and it's so different than it is here I mean I kind of call it the wild west in some ways because it does feel like there's unlimited not I, I don't know what the word is, but there's but it's wild. There's something, <laughs> yeah. there's something very untamed yes. about being in those parts of Mexico. Do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely, and and you're you're definitely correct. Uh, now Mexico is very very uh, diverse in uh, in in exactly what we're t we're talking about here. Uh, it it can be very cosmopolitan, like Mexico City or some of the bigger cities like Guadalajara. And, uh, but then when you, when you get out to, into the smaller cities or smaller towns and small communities, it's, uh, for me, it's like going backwards in time. Because when I yeah. actually go to our little community and our little tiny town outside of Aranda, Salisco, uh, and that's exactly what I feel like. I've gone back a hundred years in time. Yeah. I have no cell phone signal, no Wi-Fi, uh, no way to get news other than going into the city. And I'm just, completely disconnected. And uh, at first, it's very tense to, 
you know, what if I miss a phone call? What if I miss an important message? But then you learn to accept it and, and you relax. And, and it's almost like this huge weight is lifted off your shoulders because uh, you're there to do what you're going to do. And you're almost uh, you know, very separated from the rest of the world. Does it complement for you or conflict for you in terms of how you see yourself to live and, and be part of two cultures? Does it ever, I mean, is there ever a chance where it conflicts and ever, ever, ever time when it complements? Because I know cultural identity is something that's so important. And people that don't really have that fabric of ancestral ties to land or to uh, rituals or to practices or to beliefs, you know, there, there's something that they can't really understand when you talk about culture, what that means. But identity and culture is a huge, huge thing. And I think people that live in two cultures, I, from what I hear in the conversation, sometimes it complements, sometimes it conflicts. Um, that's, uh, that's very, very true, uh, because, um, yes, I, I do live in two cultures. It's like I have one foot uh, here and the other foot there, and uh, yeah. they don't always, always complement each other. A lot of times they do, uh, but not always, and sometimes there are conflicts. I was raised very, in a very traditional Mexican family, and, mm -hmm. uh, and so then I would go from that to the other extreme in, in school, and very, very uh, Americanized, and, um, and I had to learn both systems uh, because uh, they were, I knew that they were both going to be a very big part of me, so I, I learned to live in uh, the U.S. Uh, learn to operate in, in all of the systems, all of the uh, the ways to uh, to live here in the U.S. But yet, I never wanted to let go of my Mexican culture and, and the traditions, which uh, and my language, uh, which I was raised to appreciate how important those those aspects are of our past. I never wanted to let that go. Because it seems like sometimes people, in order to acclimate or assimilate they it has to come at the it comes at the expense of letting parts of themselves go so they can su survive and adapt and I see it all the time when kids come here from let's say Africa they don't speak any English or Russia I'm trying to think of who was in my classrooms as a kid Mexican Hispanic uh, you know Asian you know we had all all sorts of people that would come and they wouldn't speak the language and you would just see them in the corner sort of sitting there but over the years they would start to dress a certain way they would start to you know use certain words and you could see that in order for them to adapt and survive at a young age you learn that you have to let some of those parts go um, and when you're older, you go back, right? You start to appreciate those parts and people try to reclaim some of those aspects of themselves. But I always wondered how culture, to me, it seems like such an asset, you know, how lucky we are to learn from and be part of and experience the world through your eyes based on your culture. So, I, you know, I, I just always wondered how people balance that. I think it's very important to to maintain that balance because I see I see so many kids, some of the young young kids that are brought here from another country, they try very hard to fit in uh, in school right. with with the, the friends or peers, and I think that they see they see the necessity to let go of their past and, and right. try to adapt or try to assimilate as much as they can, which. Uh, you know, in certain degree, in certain aspects, I suppose you kind of have to you have to learn how to how to uh, how to live in this society. I think that is very important right. to, to learn how to live in this society, learn the language, learn how to how to survive and how to do well in this society. But at the same time, let's not let go of that richness that we have of our culture. That makes right. us. I think if we maintain that, that makes us so much more of it adds so much more to 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 who we are uh, as as people as a person. You don't have to let go of all of that. You can uh, maintain your language. You can maintain your traditions and your culture. Uh, hey, there's a <laughs> little visitor there. And and to me, I, I I'm so so grateful that my parents always emphasized that with us. 
Uh, my dad actually grew up in the U.S., so he spoke fluent English, but at home, he always spoke to us in Spanish. And, uh, and I think, I don't know if he planned it this way, but I, I think he realized that it was important for us to maintain our, our language. And I saw the importance of that uh, later in life because, uh, uh, for example, in my practice, I use Spanish every single day. Uh, a, right. good, a good percentage of my patient population is Spanish speaking only. And I pride myself in being able to speak to them and understand them. And good communication goes beyond just being able to make yourself understood. Uh, good communication involves uh, having empathy for that other person, really understanding uh, their lives or how they're living and some of the things that they're going through and, and showing them that you really care. And, and if, if, you, if you don't have that good communication, that's very, very hard to do. When you go back to Mexico, do people there look at you differently because of your experience and stature? And I mean, do you feel it going the other way? You know, that, that's, that is very interesting because, um, yes, that, that, that's very true. Sometimes I feel uh, that part of me is, is from Mexico, part of, it, part of me is from the U.S., but mm -hmm. maybe not 100% either one, uh, because I'm a product, yeah. of, I'm actually a product of both. So when I go mm -hmm. to Mexico, again, I try as hard as I can to, to fit in, to, to speak the local jargon, and, uh, and to fit in and to be accepted as much as possible. That's important to me. You know, people are not, they're very observant, and, and they, can, they can spot you like that, that, that you're not, right. that you Maybe I was born there, but I was I didn't actually grow up there. And they can tell right away. Well, because you've been educated in a in a country, a college, you know, you've got it, you've you're a doctor, you have a professional life, you're not tied to your family's land to the degree where you've been farming your whole life and like that's all you've ever known. You know, you've seen parts of the world. And it's not to say that one is better or different than the other. It's just a frame of reference that I would mm -hmm. think going back, because I have, having been to those parts of Mexico, I've seen how poor some of those places are and how remote some of those places are and how that's really going to be the life that these people are going to know. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to really have a different perspective. So I would, I could see how there could be going the other way some some level of of not discomfort but just difference that that would be present absolutely and people that don't know our family uh they may see me as as uh, you know somebody that left and now is trying to come back and, and trying to fit in but really is they may see me as not being one of them uh, right. but i feel i do feel very fortunate that in our little community in our little town I'm very fortunate that my grand, actually my two grandfathers really did so much for the people of that community that people there still remember and they still appreciate it. And That's good. And you still do now. When I go there, when I arrive, I feel like I'm welcomed with open arms because there's a lot of loyalty there. Uh, and a lot of people do remember, again, my, grand, my grandfathers, uh, my dad in the U.S. Uh, was a, a ranch foreman and he was able to bring a lot of those folks up to the U.S. to work. And then he would uh, help them save their money, uh, help them plan for their futures. And, and uh, a lot of them ended up saving their money to the point where they could actually buy their own land back in Mexico and return and build a house and have a family. And people know that. They, they realize that and they, and they remember. Uh, also, they're now at this point, they're very, very appreciative that we have the ranch productive again, that we're providing jobs for the folks there that... Uh, Mm -hmm. This is in a little community that has no other industries. And, and um, right. so a lot of those folks, for so, so many years, uh, the men and the families have risked their lives in coming to the U.S. and suffering all kinds of dangers and atrocities and, and uh, mistreatment, maltreatments, uh, just to be able to make some money to, to uh, feed their families back home. We've been able to, through keeping the ranch productive, and through all the folks that have supported our project that helps us to, to continue to work the ranch, we've been able to give them the choice now to work for us and to stay home with their families. Every night they're, yeah. home, they're home eating dinner with their families. They're watching, watching their kids grow up. You know, they would have it no other way but, but to be there. Uh, so many folks that come here, they, they don't come here by choice. They come here by necessity. 
And yep. again, if given that choice, they would much rather be home with their families. And so in that little community, I am accepted with open arms. People uh, just, uh, they look out for us. Uh, I, I have never felt to be in any kind of danger uh, in, in our community. And, uh, and yeah, folks just look out for us. Uh, I'll give you an example. Our foreman, Luis Guzman, who has been with us from day one, uh, 28 years ago, when we first started farming the ranch, uh, he's been instrumental in, in, uh, in helping us carry out this project. He actually grew up on our ranch working for my grandfather. And so he knows every square inch of, uh, of the land. And, uh, and, and also he's very, very loyal to us because of, because of all that my grandfather did for, for their family. And that's just one example. But yes, uh, you're absolutely right in, in, in uh, other areas where folks don't know us, don't know our, our family history there. Uh, I am seeing I am seen as an outsider, not yeah. not fully Mexican that I've grown up grown up in the U.S. And now, why am I coming back? Uh, why am I trying to do uh, do these things that we're doing? It's kind of hard to deal with sometimes, but I have to accept yeah. it. I have to accept that that's the way people are going to be, probably just about anywhere. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm idealistic and I'm wishing for something that's you know, rose-colored glasses, but it sure would be nice just to see people as people. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, that would be, that would be the, the dream and everything that that would bring. And even in your professional identities, you have, you know, you're an optometrist and then you go and you put on your CEO hat of a tequila company. How do those two professional lives work for you in how you see yourself you know many times i'm asked what in the world is an optometrist doing producing tequila and uh it, it really makes a lot of sense because during the week i help people to see better and on the weekends and evenings i help them to see twice as good uh actually uh, uh that that's not the, the the true story um i see for me, I see the two as being very, very intermingled because uh, you know, I grew up loving science, sciences and math. Uh, so my, my love, my first love is science. Uh, and to be given this opportunity, had I not had that science background, I probably would not have been able to do what we're doing now. So I was able to use what I learned in school here in the US and put it to use in an entirely different way, in a way that I never would have imagined uh, uh, prior to 28 years ago to be able to use my science background and to be able to return to the ranch that was so special to me right. and do, do what we're doing there and growing record-breaking, record-setting agaves and producing uh, tequila. We talked earlier about the science of growing agave and, and cre creating tequila, and a lot of it, a lot of what we do in the fields is, is science, and a lot of what is done in the distillery is science. Uh, to me, a distillery is is like a giant uh, science laboratory, just on a much bigger scale. The, the, what you mentioned before, fermentations, distillations, titrations, all of that is comes straight out of the science laboratory. But it's not purely science. You also mentioned art and culture. Right. And yep. that is what gives a product like tequila, that's what gives it that magical touch, is the art and the mm. culture that we put behind creating this product. He's holding up a bottle right now of the Alchemian. I'm guessing that's the Añejo? This is the Añejo, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, and it looks mighty delicious. Mm -hmm. uh, for people that don't drink tequila... And, and we'll come back to the, the track that we were on. But I wanted just to say that it is a flavor that takes time to learn how to engage with because the, the misperceptions are so high that people think you have to slam it and shoot it and you need a lime and you need a salt and it's this and it's this whole, you know, with worms and sombreros and jello shots. And let me tell you, it is nothing like that. It is like the finest brandy, the finest wine. You, you learn to ingest the flavors on your tongue. And to me, it's like the most warming, 
magical swirly experience once you get like that really delicious sip and you can taste the agave and the wood and the spice and uh, there are no two flavors that are alike. I, I, I've not had a tequila that I would say if I'm really sipping and enjoying it, where I would say, wow, those are the same. Like Fortaleza is very different than Alchemia and Alchemia is very different than Teralta and Teralta is very different than um, T1. So they all have their own unique, interesting profiles because of the way it is grown and the where the land it's come from and the the fermentation process there are steps involved that create the flavor that you get in that bottle by the time you're sipping it uh, it's one of the most amazing journeys you will go on if you choose to learn and engage with uh, tequila in that way because you can learn about the families and the histories and the land and the ritual and the tradition and there's just so much beauty in uh, what goes into a bottle of tequila, at least for me, I've learned to really appreciate that. That's great. And I'm glad that you're, you're at this point through all of the years that you've invested in, in learning about tequila and learning how to taste tequila and how to properly appreciate a fine tequila. Because so, so many times we run into people that say, oh no, tequila is not for me. So many people have these bad uh, experiences, uh, especially college stories where they just had too much tequila. I've heard them all too. <laughs> <laughs> missing days, missing underwear, some bushes involved, a party, you know, I've heard, yeah. I've heard all of them. People, and, and I think that's part of the, the learning curve is the education on this spirit is steep. Even it's with people like distributors, when we were trying to distribute tequila, we were in embarking on that a little bit it was the education curve was was steeper than any other spirit it's it, it's so misunderstood and usually if you can turn one person's perspective around then I feel like I've done my job like if I'm at a bar and somebody's looking to order something and they look at me and say what would you get they open the door to the conversation <laughs> I'm on good for you good for you you're you're a true ambassador of the of tequila. <laughs> um, but yeah and, and we have that perception working against us uh, and and so we have to do exactly that is to educate people and get them to be open to trying tequila again but trying it in a in an entirely different way uh, trying tequila as something that you sip and enjoy and savor. You take your time with it and get as much as you can out of the, the flavor profile, the, the aroma and, and everything that goes into making it. And, you know, rather than, as you said, slamming it back or grabbing the salt and the lime, which uh, all that does is it makes a bad tequila easier to drink. Uh, but tequila, there's no reason why uh, a really finely crafted tequila cannot be held in the same esteem as a fine uh, French cognac. Uh, I like that glass you've got. Uh, the, and this is, and again, we don't like, we don't like the shot glasses. No, we do not like the shot glasses. He's holding up a snifter. Yes, he's holding up like a very nice, uh, small looking snifter, which is how I prefer to drink it too. Yeah, exactly. You, you uh, swirl it around, you let it open up, you enjoy the uh, the aromas of the tequila, and then you and then you sip it slowly. You take your time. This is not something that should be rushed. You would not slam back a, a snifter of cognac or a, or a fine uh, single malt scotch. Uh, you would take your time with it. Uh, I, I tell people, look at a fine tequila as an investment that, uh, or a present to yourself. And you want to get as much out of this as you can. So if you slam it back, what did you taste? It went straight down the gullet. Have you had any of like Felipe's or Guillermo's or Ramon's? These are all other tequila distillers that have that are in the small tequila community world that craft really delicious and lovely spirits. Have you had any of their private stash tequila? Not yet. In that, um, I, I I know them. I have great respect for all of the gentlemen that you've mentioned and their tequilas. I th I think they're they're they do. Just do amazing work and then do just beautiful, uh, beautifully crafted tequilas. Uh, however, uh, I've 
interacted with them. Uh, my interaction with them has all been in the U.S., <laughs> and I've, I've yet to be able to to visit them in Mexico. Usually, when I go when I go to Mexico, I go straight out to the ranch, right. do as much as I can in as in as few days as I can, and then uh, and then back again. So I haven't had the luxury of being able to really spend time with. Uh, with Guillermo, with, uh, with Felipe, with Carlos, uh, with Germán. Uh, we're all good friends of mine, but I haven't had the luxury of being able to visit them in, in their distilleries or, or in their homes and, and really take our time and, and sit through. And I'm sure that they do have some very, very amazing private stashes. <laughs> Next time we get together, oh, I'm going to bring wonderful. you some of Felipe's. <laughs> oh, mm, it's boy, my Holy Grail bottle. It's only, it was from his office. It was from a private barrel. And I'm telling you, it was, there, there's none, they'll never be. I mean, it's just, it. yeah. So next time we get together, whenever that happens, I'm going to bring you a nice little nifter of that. I'm going to let you enjoy the craftsmanship that it is. Yeah, Felipe, some people regard him as a mad scientist because he, he does just amazing things. Uh, he does amazing things with his tequilas. He does, and uh, you know, within his distillery, he does just he does produce uh, several different labels or several different lines. And uh, which brings me back to the point where right. you mentioned earlier that the tequilas that you enjoy they're very different. You, you can tell the differences on your palate uh, because you've educated your palate. And so some people right. ask, well, why are this? There's so many brands. There's, what is there about two thousand different uh, tequila brands out there? Uh, you know, how, yeah, can, uh, how, can all, how can you make so many different tequilas and aren't they all the same? Isn't all tequila the same? And definitely not. So much depends on where the agave was grown, the, the microclimates, the terroir. There is terroir in tequila, just like there is in wine, if you source your agaves from a particular region. Uh, a lot of the larger producers, of course, they source agaves right. from all over the state of Jalisco, so you really lose that aspect of, of uh of the individuality of, of the, your tequila. But some of those smaller brands, the smaller handcrafted brands do source this from a very particular location. Just as I mentioned, some of the uh, conditions uh, in, in our ranch. So we have our own microclimate. We have our own terroir, which is very different from 20 minutes away from us in Arandas. Uh, very, very different conditions. It's uh, true. How you... Uh, how you ferment your tequila, what type of yeast do you use? Uh, even uh, well, even before that, how you cook your agaves. Step by step. Yeah, step by step. And every single step is going to be a little bit different from somebody else. And that all ends up giving it its, those different nuances in the final product. Part of the education, you know, I would think the opportunity and the challenge is what is the duty and role of tequila in the world to help create bridges between cultures, between Mexico and the rest of the world? Like what, in the big scheme of things, when you think of tequila, how much responsibility do you think, not responsibility, but inherent sort of weightiness is there on tequila as a representation of Mexico? Because you've traveled all over mm -hmm. You've talked to a lot of people. You've represented your brand in many, many places, I'm sure. Many shows, many exhibits, many contests. And it, to me, it would seem like there's some pride and ownership from the culture and the origin of where it comes from. That That's like part of the gift is to talk about it. But do you feel that when you're out there talking to people? Well, absolutely. And, 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 and actually, I do feel it is our, that it is our responsibility. Uh, as as ambassadors of a very very Mexican product out there in the world, and uh, so our I think our first responsibility is to present our tequila or good tequilas in a very favorable light, uh, because part of that again goes back to educating the public about why they should give tequila another chance or why they should consider a finely crafted. Uh, tequila, and so that is that. I see that as as my first responsibility is to get people to uh, really know more and appreciate about what goes into making a tequila, uh, and what is behind this this entire culture and the, all of these these sets of traditions that have culminated in 
in this uh, in this final product and presenting it in a in a very positive very favorable light then after that uh, of course uh, teaching people how to appreciate a good tequila how to go through a proper tasting appreciating the visual aspects uh, the nose or the aroma the taste mm. the finish uh, so many different aspects of of how to appreciate a finely crafted tequila i see it as is the last on my list of responsibilities in representing tequila yeah. and representing Mexico, the last on, my, right. on that list is actually representing my brand of tequilas. Right. Uh, because right. by the time I get there and people appreciate my brand, I feel like I've done my job. Uh, because that consumer, that, that person that has opened up about tequila and given my tequila a chance and, and has appreciated it, the next time around, they're going to be more apt to maybe trying another small handcrafted brand. Absolutely. It could be Felipe's. That's the way it that be, goes. It could be Felipe's. It could be Herman's. It could be you know, so many good, great, really good people that are in this industry. And, and if we all do our job, which, uh, which uh, I know most of us are, are doing that, in one way or another, support each other. Uh, because uh, if I get people, if I get someone to switch from a huge mass marketed brand and give a small brand a chance uh, yes maybe maybe they're not necessarily going to choose mine maybe they choose felipe's or germans or uh, or yermos but we've we've gotten them to open up and, and try something different and try something uh, 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 really finely crafted and uh and i know that they're going to like it and so eventually, That's sustainable. yeah, absolutely. And eventually they might come back and, and, uh, and try mine too. <laughs> so, so we, we're all in this together. Uh, we're all working together to that same. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. And so for comparison, how much do you produce compared to somebody like Patron? I mean, this is what I want people to understand. When we talk about small batch, handcrafted, family owned, when you have choices and what you support and why, I think this is an important one. So tell me like what roughly your brand produces compared to a pick a, a mainstream brand. We have our, our acreage uh, divided up into, uh, into seven or eight different uh, sections because we want to have uh, agave of all different ages. So then subsequently, seven or eight years later, we can yeah. have a harvest every year. Otherwise, we'd be waiting a long time before between harvests. So from each harvest... Right. From each harvest from our, our own fields, we can produce uh, roughly about 100,000 bottles a year, which is, uh, you know, you compare that to Patron and that's a drop in the bucket for them. They do that in a day or a week or something. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I heard their numbers at one point. But uh, at the same time, in our little community, we feel that we're making a difference for, for the people there. Uh, again, providing jobs. Those jobs then translate into... Uh, more consumer uh, consuming of, of products uh, there in the little town, uh, the, the, and I've seen this transformation over the years since we since we've been uh, uh, working down there. Is that uh, this was a little dusty town? We didn't have a, even have a paved highway to get to where we are. Uh, we used to have to cross the stream in a four wheel drive uh, vehicle, and uh, yeah. uh, no paved streets in, in the town. Uh, no electricity. <laughs> no running water. And so over the years that we've been there, we now have running water, we have electricity, we have a paved street, or at least the main streets in town. Uh, we have a paved highway. But more importantly, the, uh, the folks that earn their money working on, on our ranch, uh, very well earned, in fact, uh, they then, uh, because once they see that this is going to be a regular job, that the, the, they realize the security that they have working with us, they then are going to turn around and, and want to expand on their house, maybe build a couple of extra rooms for their kids. So they go and buy bricks from the local brick maker. They hire the local brick layer. They hire the local plumber. Uh, they then are able to bring in more materials and do more work. And then everybody that's within this circle then is going to be able to... Uh, maybe splurge a little bit at the little local neighborhood store. So the little stores are going to be able to stock up more, more product. And it just keeps going over and over and over. It's uh, just a wonderful thing to see. Well, it's cool that you can see it at that, that micro level, because that's something a lot of us don't get to see. We're too used to our consumer conveniences of big stores and 
there aren't the mom pa stores. That's one thing I love about going to Europe or uh, there's lots of places where uh, I've been, even New York. It, it's there. It, it, I mean, forget small town USA is because that's a given, but there are metropolitan cities where mm-hmm. they're not about big box stores. It's about the, the local grocery store that's down the block and the dry cleaner that's there. It's all about the um, small family owned businesses that are contributing and you can feel it and see it and how the community starts to come together once they're all working towards something that's united in that way to support each other in a neighborhood. Absolutely. And, and then, you know, that sense of community is, is something that's uh, just, uh, uh, you can't, uh, uh, you can't downplay the importance of, of that community feeling and, and the, you know, the neighborhoods supporting each other and uh, helping each other grow. And, um, and we feel very, very fortunate to have been able to, to help be a part of that uh, down there in our community. And, but to that, we owe, in order to, for us to keep our ranch productive and to keep working and to keep hiring uh, the folks, uh, we, owe, we owe that to the, all the people up here that support our brand. Uh, without, without that support, we would not be able to do our work down there. Yeah, and I will say it's one of the better brands. I mean, your beer is in my top seven, I would say. <laughs> I mean, I've tried a lot of tequilas, but I but I would put that up. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's so good. I just ordered a bottle before we got on. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> because well, I knew I was talking to you, and <laughs> I was like, you know what? I need to get one of those. Mine is getting a little bit low, and we're celebrating because – my husband just finished uh, graduating nursing school with his LPN. Oh my gosh, congratulations. Yeah, so it was a big, big deal. So I thought, you know, this would be a, a good way to good way to celebrate. It's it's uh, so magic swirly delicious and there's so many things happening at mm-hmm. once in that bottle. It's just extraordinarily mm-hmm. good. All your tequilas are good. Don't get me wrong. I do love Alchemia. All, of, all the expressions are delicious. I think one of the first... Uh, ones I had of yours was um, the Blanco Mm. and the Blanco means that it has not been rested it's not it's just straight from the still and for a lot of aficionados that's where they start because they want to get the basis of what the agave is all about where it's grown and all the flavor I'm not that much of a nerd (laughs) (laughs) and I tend to like some of the the aged the reposados or the añejos so just so people out there know uh, the way it goes with um, tequila, the Blanco is uh, straight from the still, and um, that's the clear. And for Alchemia, uh, the Reposado is six months aged in American white oak barrels. Uh, so Reposados can be aged anywhere from three to nine months. It's up to, to the distiller when they, what they decide in their formulas. The Añejos are aged uh, one year to three years in various barrels of the distiller's choosing. And the extra Añejo can be um, three to five years, maybe up to six years, depending on what the distiller chooses and how he wants to rest the barrels. So what's fascinating is by the time you're drinking something like an Añejo, figure the agaves in the ground for seven, eight years, it gets harvested, it goes through its process. And then by the time it's aged for another six, seven years, you're looking at almost 15 years by the time you're drinking whatever's in that bottle, by the time the whole process has begun from seed to to your mouth, from the bottle being in, in front of you. So it is not a, a quick prospect. This is something that is a true labor of love where a lot of time and energy and sweat and history and, and culture goes into each and every bottle. Absolutely. And, and uh... Well, before I forget, please congratulate Mark. I think that's amazing that that, that, that pivot, yeah. that pivot that he did, and and and, and, and uh, going into nursing. I, I think that's wonderful. I think he'll be a great nurse. Uh, so yeah. uh, yes, we're we're actually very proud of our blanco tequila because, as you said, this is the base for the rest of our line. And uh, no matter what you do in the with a barrel, it's very very hard to make a great aged product from a mediocre. Blanco. So it was very important for yes. us to, to have to create the best Blanco that we could. And uh, because we knew, one, that that was going to be the base for the rest of our line. But two, we wanted to create our Blanco that, uh, that you can sip as a sipping tequila 
rather than uh, mixing it into a margarita or, or you know, worse. <laughs> uh, that would be that would be that would be like a stake in the heart to watch <laughs> would, somebody mixing your blanco in a margarita. Uh, and so, uh, so we we age our product in in, uh, in once used Jack Daniel's barrels, and we like them to be used because they're already broken in for us. Uh, we could use mm -hmm. brand new oak barrels, and that would give us a much faster aging change. But to me, brand new oak is, is too aggressive on the delicate spirit of tequila, and it would really upset that balance. So it was important to us to age them as gently as possible. And that's why our tequilas, uh, especially our more aged tequilas, are aged much longer than required by the Tequila Regulatory Council. Uh, so, for example, our Añejo is aged, uh, and as you mentioned, it has to be aged for one year up to three years. Arañejo is aged mm -hmm. one month short of the three years, 35 months. Uh, and the reason for that is mm -mm, as, mm -mm. <laughs> as we were aging it, we would open <laughs> barrels and taste it, and we just kept liking it more and more mm -hmm. the longer it aged. And then when it was, uh, when the three years was, was uh, approaching, uh, we realized that uh, if we didn't bottle it, right then that we were going to, we were not going to have an Añejo, that it was going to be the next category up, which was extra Añejo. So, uh, so yeah. we, we barely caught it on time and we've continued to do that because we've just liked it and we like to give that consistency. Do you need a tasting intern? Uh, we can always use, uh, we can always use more tasting <laughs> interns. Uh, we, we, we love people's opinions and we always take them into uh, into oh, account. gosh. Uh, yeah. So then, because our Añejo was so close to being an extra Añejo, uh, our actual uh, extra Añejo, we, needed, we knew we needed to let that uh, age for quite a bit longer. Otherwise, it would be too similar to our Añejo. We wanted to right. have to each have its own character, its own personality. So again, this we were we were tasting as we went along, and, and again we were liking it more and more as the more it aged, until we were uh, at about six years, and we figured we better go ahead and, and uh, bottle this because people were waiting for it. And, oh, uh, he's showing so, the bottle yeah, right so, now too. So our extra añejo, our first mm -mm -mm. extra añejo, we bottled this at six years in the barrel, and then I remember when we first tried that one. Uh-huh. Yeah, probably the Monterey. Yeah. I love that show. <laughs> I, I know. That show. And that's going to be, you know, things are going to change there, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure your whole world is going to change oh, with it, how it you has, get in front of everybody now. Yeah, it has just changed tremendously already. So then uh, I mentioned earlier that our very first production of our own tequila was in the year 2004. And at that time, we... we we, whatever we bottled as a Blanco, we did then. We uh, waited a little bit longer and, and bottled the, the uh, Reposado. Uh, but of those barrels, we set a number of those barrels uh, far far away in the corner of the warehouse, of the, the aging warehouse. And uh, and we, were, we just kind of let those be and forgot about those for many years until, um, until not long ago, we started opening some of those barrels, which at that time were now 14 years. 14 years <laughs> there and it is. We, and, uh, and this is it, what you, uh, oh. what you just ordered. Uh, and we, mm. we tasted it right out of the barrel without uh, all of our tequilas up to uh, before this. All of our tequilas are 80 proof or 40% alcohol. Yeah. Uh, this tequila came out of the barrels at about 100 proof. And we tasted it straight out of the barrel, and there was just so much flavor, just oh, loaded with it's flavor, and so thick uh, that we that I said it, it would be a shame to dilute this down to 80 proof. Let's just bottle it the way it is, right out of the barrel. And uh, and actually, some of those barrels uh, over 14 years, we we actually lost a lot of product. Uh, How many bottles were it. produced of that? It seems like it was pretty uh -huh. small. Yeah, we're releasing this in lots of 1,000 bottles at a time. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, when we, once we start to open those barrels, some of them are half full from yeah. evaporation. Yeah, that yeah. evaporation, uh, as you know, we call the angel share. And we have very happy angels in Aranda Salisco. Yes. And they really, they really like their tequila, so they, they really take their share. Some and of they those hang barrels around. Are, 
Yeah, and some of those barrels are actually less than half full. Some are almost uh, completely dry. So we've lost a lot of product over those past 14 years uh, before we bottled it. But the trade-off was that uh, even though we lost a lot of product, the essential oils in the tequila and a lot of those flavors just became more concentrated. Mm. <laughs> so that's what we have in the bottle here is the result of those 14 years of aging, of concentrating all of those, those uh, factors, those elements that we really love in our tequila. And when you appreciate this, again, in a nice little uh, cognac mm. snifter, uh, the nose is just amazing on this. And then, uh, then of course, the, the, uh, the taste on your palate uh, just, uh, uh, is just incredible. Uh, the complexity of flavors that, that have, uh, that have uh, transformed this tequila over all of those years. Uh, and, uh, and I really hope that people really appreciate it. And uh, in fact, we, um, starting back about uh, maybe four years ago, we first brought out a, a little sample bottle of this at the Monterey Tequila Show. Mm -hmm. And uh, it wasn't labeled, it wasn't- uh, I was you know, there. You were. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't labeled, and it wasn't uh, mm. uh, you know, marketable in that way. I had it in a, in a bottle under the table, and I and uh, just uh, I wanted the opinion of just a few people whose opinions I, I really respected. And I told two or three of those folks, and within probably fifteen or twenty minutes, uh, probably Your table all of was them. Swarmed. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Probably Bring all of those people, uh, yeah, <laughs> and within that short amount of time, all of those people whose opinions I wanted uh, had already been at my table asking uh, for the bottle under the table, and yes. uh, and we, we had such a favorable response that we said, this is, we need to bring this out, and finally we did uh, uh, a little over a year ago. And we did bring it out at Monterey in its final form. I think that was the first public event uh, where we actually brought it out to folks in, in the final form, like you see here. Uh, we just uh, we were just very very pleased with with how uh, people accepted uh, our, our tequila. Well, we're discerning. So every year for the last ten years, I've helped put on a tequila event in Monterey. It's called the Monterey Bay Tequila and Cuisine, and uh, this is part of how I got involved in tequila, but it, every year people from all over the country, the small knit group of aficionados gather. It's like one of the best tequila events in the country. It's certainly one of the best well-run, best attended, uh, best brands, best education. I mean, it's just such a great event and we get the distillers who come and these aficionados and we're always asking for the distillers bottles from under the table because we know that they're bringing something <laughs> extraordinary. And everybody has their glass. We get snifters and people walk up to the table like, please, uh, can I have some more? <laughs> you know, just asking for the little bitty pours. But then we all talk about who's got what and who's under the table and whatever. But it's been a true honor. I've been part of that just because I feel like the education component is so important. And I do love this event and this year it's definitely going to look different. We're going to, we postpone it from October until March. Hopefully the world will be a little more settled down. And, um, but it is about education. And I find that your efforts in creating sustainable, organic and community-based symbiosis and in the alchemy of the spirit is really lovely. And um, it's one of my favorite tequilas, but I thought you would be an interesting person to talk about how it is to live in two cultural worlds that uh, both have gifts to give each other and you seem to be able to to do that and do it with love and with grace and with dignity and you know that's that's really great so I appreciate that you've taken the time to share with us a little bit about your world and about who you are and about tequila and the brand is called Alchemia a-L-Q-U-I-M-I-A? -I -I yes. And, um, <laughs> and uh, to look for it, look for it in your stores, or you can order online, Old Town Tequila has mm -hmm. it. One of my favorite places to order tequila from. So um, is there anything else you want to add or 
Well, yeah, back to the uh, Monterey Tequila, the great uh, honor of being able to uh, be a presenter uh, at uh, a couple of years ago at the show, mm -hmm. and, and I presented our, our uh, organic agave and tequila project, uh, and um, very well received and great group of people that uh, that attended my my lecture, and also uh, back to uh, again the, this concept of being able to do well in, in two different worlds. Uh, let's go back. 28 years ago, uh, I was a young optometrist. I had my, my private practice, which was what I had always dreamed of having. Uh, my wife and I had bought our first home. We had our two daughters and, uh, and life was good. And we were living what I felt at that time was the American dream. I had been brought to this country. I had had the opportunity to get an education uh, to come back to my community and, and establish my, my private practice. I did a lot of volunteer work. Uh, I love my practice. I love serving my community. And, uh, and again, uh, we felt we were living the American dream. And then all of a sudden, our entire world just changed completely uh, because then we were presented with this opportunity to go back and run our family ranch, uh, first farmed by my grandfather in 1941. And uh, to use the education, the knowledge that I had gained from living here in the U.S. and, and to do it uh, in such a way that, uh, that it was what we would call very successfully. Along the way, keeping that commitment of taking care of the earth, but also doing for the community. And, uh, and we have been teaching our organic methods to other growers for uh, all of those years. And, uh, and not only of agave, but of many, many other crops. And we've got actually projects going in five, five or six different states in Mexico, including avocados in uh, uh, Michoacan, uh, citrus and strawberries in uh, Guanajuato, uh, tomatoes in Sinaloa. We do all of our teaching for free on the understanding that these growers then, once they see the effects of our organic program, on their land and on their crops, they then will teach others how to do the same and, uh, and, and continue to do that. And uh, as we go very soon, we expect to reach, reach a critical mass where we'll have enough people doing this that will really make a difference in people's lives in improving the productivity of their soil, in improving the quality of life that they can offer their families and in uh, taking care of the earth. Uh, uh, taking care of our environment. And that's, that's what we want to do. And that's what we'll continue to work towards. So what I have learned then 28 years ago, I have learned that uh, the dreams are not bound by languages. Dreams are not bound by borders, which are artificial lines in the sand. That we can all dream. And if we work hard enough, that we can make our dreams come true. It's really beautiful. I, I appreciate that so much. Cheers to dreaming. I, we're, I'm going to get off and I'm going to go downstairs and I am going to pour myself some alchemia and toast you and say thank you for everything that you do to give back and connect and create community. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you inviting me to be on your show. Yes. And uh, all of you out there, salute. Salute to all of you and, and uh, I hope you enjoy your tequila. Salute. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I've had a fantastic time. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. For questions or comments, reach me at janalopez.com. And when you're having a moment of identity doubt, just remember that seeing is relieving.